How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, presented in association with KQED Public Radio. I'm Greg Dalton. As U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar oversees one-fifth of the country's total land mass, a vast portfolio that includes Native American lands, fisheries, national parks, and a system of dams and reservoirs. Those lands account for nearly a third of American energy production. Secretary Salazar joins us today to address water in California. California's reservoirs are at healthy levels this year, but the state's water system remains in crisis. Water supply has been overpromised to users, and the state's outdated storage and delivery systems are dangerously vulnerable to earthquakes. State and federal agencies are working to reduce the seismic risks, restore vital ecosystems in the Bay Delta, and ensure reliable water delivery throughout the state for a growing population. That's a tall order, and getting Californians to agree on how to do all that is a slow, agonizing, and highly political process. Prior to joining the Obama administration in 2009, Ken Salazar was a U.S. senator from Colorado, active on water issues, renewable energy, food and fuel security, and the concerns of ranchers and rural Americans. He'll give a speech, and then we'll have a conversation, including questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Please welcome Secretary Salazar. Thank you uh, very much, Greg. It's uh, good to be here. Greg was telling me that uh, the Commonwealth Club is uh, the voice of the West, and I added uh, next to Denver. Uh, but it is a voice of the West, and I recognize the historicity of this club and the fact that it was here that FDR delivered his speech and became the framework for the New Deal. And so uh, you are a club uh, that has a great history and I'm certain a great future. I want to uh, acknowledge uh, the Deputy Secretary of Interior, David Hayes, who is here. David, if you will stand. David has been uh, working uh, very hard on issues all across our country, uh, from the Arctic to the Gulf uh, to uh, all the issues that affect uh, the United States of America, but has spent a huge amount of his time working on water issues here in the state of California. And almost from day one, when I came in as Secretary, he said, we have to work on California water issues because we're at a pivotal point in history and we can make a difference. And next to him is the Commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation, the most powerful water person in the United States of America who oversees all of the distribution of all of the water through all Bureau of Reclamation facilities and works on water issues and river restoration in America. Mike Connor, Mike, if you will please stand. Um, You know, uh, I come here to uh, California because uh, as part of our austerity measures in the federal government, uh, we are now requiring ourselves to work uh, all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And so all day Saturday and all day Sunday, I was working on Washington water issues. And here on Monday, I'm working uh, on uh, California water issues. But in uh, Washington, on uh, Saturday, I participated in a very historic event, and uh, yesterday, Sunday in the Yakima River Valley in western Washington, I participated in another event. 
And I want to start out my speech by just saying that in those two events in a state just north of California, Greg, I see there great hope and great promise of what can happen when there is a commitment on the part of all people to move forward to finding solutions and getting behind uh, and beyond the decades of litigation and acrimony that has basically strangled progress on uh, finding solutions to the water issues of those places. In the Alwa River area, the lower Alwa Dam, that dam is uh, being taken down. There is, uh, it will become the uh, second largest uh, ecological restoration program in the United States of America, next to the Everglades in southern Florida. And when that uh, project is completed and the project is underway, the construction crews are at work today. Uh, it will be done in two years. It will mean great things for the economy of northern Washington. It will mean good things for the water users. It will mean great things for the restoration of 72 miles of the salmon fishery there in the lower Elwa River. Now, that wasn't easy to pull together. It took many decades, took a lot of litigation, took a lot of fights, but finally the right people came together, and they developed a framework that was, in fact, workable. So that was a celebration of success. Governors and senators and everyone that you can imagine from Washington was there as we celebrated that event. And yesterday, out in what is a very rural part of Washington in the western part of the state on a Sunday, while everybody was at church, uh, there in Yakima, we were at uh, a meeting at uh, 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning where we had the water users, we had the environmental groups, uh, we had uh, the municipal leaders, we had the members of Congress, the senators, and the governor as well. And for the first time in 30 years, they had come up with a comprehensive water uh, and river restoration program that includes, yes, uh, water development in some several hundred thousand acre feet, but yes, water conservation in more than almost uh, almost 200,000 acre feet, and a number of other things that are going to be important to restore fish passage in uh, that particular area of Washington. There too, again, uh, there were people who were older and who had been around uh, fighting those battles for a very long time, but who had come together to have said that uh, the time for fighting was over and that they had really come to a point where they needed to make progress by making sure that they were working together hand in hand. Now, that's happening in Washington. We are seeing some of that happening here in California. But it is also true that here in California, we are also at a precipice where some people are trying to push us off that wall. And so it's going to be important for California to secure its water feature, to make sure that the progress that has been made over the last several years is progress that continues to be made. We can't afford to take steps back. We need to make sure that we're making steps forward. And those who have worked with us uh, in all of the agencies of the Department of Interior, many of them who are here today, I want to thank them. But it would not be only their work that has gotten us here today because it's the state of California. The water users, the environmental groups, uh, the Indian tribes, and so many others that have helped us make the progress that we've made today. And so the three issues, uh, Greg, that I want to cover in my formal remarks have to do with uh, the Klamath River Basin and our progress on the Klamath, the San Joaquin River restoration, which is one of our most important river restoration projects throughout the United States of America, and then the pivotal issue, which will define in so many ways the future of California and the future of the United States of America and the future of these wonderful eighth graders who are here listening today who will be living that future in 50 years from now as we deal with uh, the future of the California Bay Delta. So today, 
as the debate rages in Washington over the future of our country. Uh, it also is a debate that has an impact here on how we deal with water supplies that we depend on so much in the West. Americans, both in Washington, D.C., and here in California and across all of our great nation, are being presented with two competing and very fundamentally different visions. Visions of who we are as a people and how we tackle the economic challenges of our time. One vision is of an America where when things get tough, we stand together, we work together, we believe we are one nation and that we are one people and together we can do big things together. That's how we won our independence. It's how we defeated fascism. It's how we built America's best idea, the national park system. It's how we built our highways and our dams. It's how we built the infrastructure that was once, not very long ago, the very envy of the entire world. The other vision is of an America where when things get tough, when things get tough, as they have gotten tough, it's everyone for themselves. It's a place where we give up on the rules and the standards that give us clean water, abundant wildlife, and open lands to hunt, hike, and fish. It's a place where we cut taxes for the few and abandon the less fortunate among us rather than make the investments we need to compete and to win. It is a smaller America, not the kind of America that those of the generation of World War II ever dreamt about. It is a less confident America. It is a, an America with fewer dreams and less courage, and I would submit an America not worth of the dreams and aspirations and hope that we have for the young people who are here in this audience today. The struggle between these two competing visions is being carried out in the battles over the president's jobs plans and whether to renovate schools, to fix roads, to rebuild our bridges, to cut taxes for small businesses, and to put first responders and teachers back to work. The struggle between those visions for America is also being carried out right here in California in the arena of water. Never before have water agreements that have provided security and provided certainty for Westerners been so much at risk. It's a battle between pragmatism and ideology, collaboration versus cynicism. From the San Joaquin River and the California Bay Delta to the Klamath River Basin, there are a few passionate and unyielding players who want to unravel decades of work to forge consensus, solutions, and settlements to some of the most complex water challenges of our time. I could mention their names, but you know who they are. Make sure that it's the voice of the people of California that they hear from, the voice of solutions and the voice of progress. On the San Joaquin River, a place that I have visited and have spent uh, a good amount of my time and resources, Greg, working on that issue. There are a few members of Congress that are bent like hell on, on killing a restoration program that is restoring water flows to the river, bringing stability 
and certainty to water users, and that will bring the first salmon runs to that river in half a century. There are a few of you here who are half a century old. There are a few of you here who might be a little more than half a century old. And I think all of you would acknowledge it really wasn't that long ago that there was river, there was water that flowed through that river. And yet, today, the river is flowing again. In California's Bay Delta, a plan to modernize and secure the state's aging and inadequate water supply system is always the target of pot shots. Yet the bottom line is the health of the Delta is inextricably linked to the security of safety and reliable water supplies. And on the Klamath River, the Klamath River, after a long, long fight, we reached an historic settlement that has moved us beyond those violent and very difficult water wars of the early 2000s. We today have real hope for a healthier basin and a stronger economy in the Klamath. Yet even in the Klamath today, even after Governor Schwarzenegger and Oregon's leadership and governor two years ago when I stood up and signed the agreement, today there are those who are trying to derail the deal. So I want to talk just a little bit about each of these basins, and I want to let you know why, in my view, it is time for us to stand firm, to stand together. First, it is important to remember what is at stake. I have worked on water issues for my entire life. Started my irrigation career probably as a five-year-old on a ditch in uh, the San Luis Valley that had a water priority of May 15 of 1857. And I know what happens when settlements break down and when promises are broken. You re-enter a cycle of litigation, gridlock, and paralysis. I know many friends of mine, lawyers who are water lawyers, who were in the career that I was in once, who have sent their children and their grandchildren through college because of legal fees that they collect. So the lawyers always win. The lawyers always win. The community often does not. I grew up in the San Luis Valley, as I said earlier, in southern Colorado, about 300 miles south of the city of Denver, Colorado. My family has farmed and ranched those same lands and those same soils for now over 150 years. And before that, they farmed and ranched uh, similar lands, a little bit lower and a little more uh, different kinds of soils, about 100 miles south uh, near the city of Santa Fe, where they founded that city back in 1598, almost uh, three centuries before the Southwest became part of the United States. My parents taught me as I was growing up on that small farm where we didn't have electricity and we didn't have telephone, that our way of life depended on the land and the water and the wildlife around us. They also taught us that uh, our life so much depended on our community and uh, those who lived around our place. That we were always there to help them, to give them a helping hand in the way that they were always there to give us a helping hand. And when I became the Attorney General of the State of Colorado in 1998, I worked with my neighbors in the San Luis Valley to end what had been 40, 50 years of litigation. It took farmers and ranchers, water districts, conservationists, all working together to defeat a water grab that would have hurt our San Luis Valley. 
we worked hard to protect our water supplies. And even though when we started that effort, the word environmentalist was a bad word. It's probably never been a bad word here in San Francisco, but it was a bad word in my valley. By the time that we ended up through that process, it was the Nature Conservancy and other groups had come together with the ranchers in that community who had understood that we could achieve two co-equal goals. And joined then by Secretary of the Interior Bruce Babbitt and David Hayes, we were able to move forward with a program that developed a long-term sustainable water supply by maintaining a level of groundwater flow and protection of water within the San Luis Valley on the one hand. And on the other hand, created the Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve, which has become the number one tourism economic generator in the San Luis Valley. So after 40, 50 years of fights, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and back, we were able to find peace in my valley. It is that same peace that I'm hoping we are able to find in the Klamath, in the Bay Delta, and in the San Joaquin. In California, more than 25 million people rely on the California Bay Delta for clean drinking water. Yet the state's water infrastructure was built for a population half as large. So I was reviewing this piece of my speech this morning. I was thinking, this is kind of like a shoe that you buy for a child that is growing up, which is a size 5 shoe. And then that child's foot grows to be to a size 10 shoe. Let's say it's a man, male, to a size 10 shoe. And what we try to do is to put that same size 5 shoe in that size, or that, si- that size 10 foot in that size 5 shoe. So how can we in California today expect that a system that was built to provide water for 12 million people today provide water for 25 million people? And how can we expect that same system to continue to provide water to the people of California when you take into account the projections for growth in California? It's a simple question. It can't be done unless we're courageous and we take some action. Meanwhile, there are even larger forces besides population growth that strain on our system. Climate change is here. The debate over whether it's happening or not, scientists will tell you it is happening. We see declines, for example, in the Colorado River Basin, which is an integral part of the water supply here in California, where the best science of America is telling us that we are going to see dramatic declines in the flow of water from the Colorado River system that will have a dramatic effect on California water. We're seeing dramatic differences in terms of the timing of runoff for water that comes from the snow that falls in our mountains. We can't ignore this reality. It does no good to blame the scientists or to bury our heads in the sand. So we need to talk about solutions. In November 2010, President Barack Obama signed into law a bill which created four major water rights settlements which were spearheaded by Mike O'Connor and by David Hayes in my office. And they resolved not only decades but hundreds of years of litigation. So I ask myself as I look back at something that happened on my watch as Secretary of Interior, if we could deal with issues that have been in litigation and conflict for centuries, 
the Navajo Nation, the Crow tribe in Montana, the Pueblos of northern New Mexico, places where Native Americans had uh, waited to have a portable water supply brought to them for almost a century, where they were bringing in water supply just through the five-gallon tanks in the back of pickup trucks or other water tanks, we were able to resolve those issues. If we're able to resolve those issues in those places, why can't we resolve the issues here in California? And this Saturday, as I said earlier, a project which, when it is completed in about two years from now, will be about a $400 million project, will be the second largest river restoration project in the history of America. We have done that. It's not just pie in the sky, people doing planning and litigating and thinking that it might happen 10 or 20 years from now. It's a reality that I will invite you to go see for yourselves two years from now. That river will, in fact, be restored along with all of the economic and all of the environmental benefits that it will bring. And as I said there with Governor Gregor and with the senators that day, it's important to remember that in these times of economic crisis and the need for jobs in America, that project there is about jobs today because people are working on that restoration. But it's also about jobs for tomorrow because the recreational industry along that river will be part of the 6.5 million jobs that are created every year through outdoor recreation in America. 6.5 million jobs, the fifth largest sector in the American economy. So as Washington debates back and forth about what to do with our jobs agenda, let's not forget the recreation and conservation agenda that is so pivotal to our country. So let me turn my attention here. I'm going to try to shorten this speech just a little bit to uh, specifically a few of the California issues. So on the Klamath Basin, Klamath Basin, we know that uh, with severe drought and strain, on the system in 2001. We saw the severe water shortages that uh, crippled the community, both economically as well as politically. It was followed in 2002 by the largest fish die-off in the basin's history, if not in all of U.S. history. After years of litigation, we reached an agreement in 2010. Under that agreement, the parties are to undertake a comprehensive environmental and economic analysis of the impacts of removing four dams on the Klamath River. The agreement, which President Obama and I stand fully behind, sets up an open and transparent process for choosing the best path for the Klamath Basin. Science and public engagement are at the heart of that process. For the last several months, the department has been publicly releasing the individual science reports as they become final. The draft EIS, which complements these scientific studies, will be available for public review and comment beginning this Thursday. The analysis and study will show a few important facts at this stage. First, as with all these projects, they will show there are pluses and there are minuses to dam removal on the Klamath River. The studies estimate that dam removal will result in a loss of hydroelectric power and a loss of about 50 jobs from managing those facilities. It would also result in the loss of some recreational opportunities on the Klamath River reservoirs and some decrease in land values for nearby property, 
landowners. So there are some negatives. But that's what we have to do with the facts on the table. On the other side, what the studies will also show is that the watershed-wide restoration program would add more than 4,500 jobs to the economy, and it would include over 1,400 jobs just during the time period of job re of, of dam removal. That's in comparison to the 50 jobs that are there now. The studies say that reliability in water supplies that would be gained would boost gross farm income and add between 70 and 695 jobs annually to the agricultural economy. So yes, farmers and ranchers in that area would benefit, and the economy as a whole would significantly benefit. Moreover, in an area which President Obama and I are committed to making sure we do not forget in this country, the interests and uh, concerns of the first Americans of the United States, Klamath restoration would help address the tribal trust issues for the Klamath River Basin tribes and would be beneficial to their water quality, fisheries, and traditional cultural practices. There would also be significant benefits to salmon fishermen. With removal of the dams on the Klamath, Coho would reclaim 68 miles of historical habitat. Steelhead, the Klamath's River's most popular sport fishery, would regain 420 miles of historical habitat. And commercially harvested Chinook salmon production would increase by more than 80%. Altogether, 11 coastal counties in Oregon and California would see gains of more than 400 jobs as a result of improved fishing conditions. These are significant numbers. We will also be looking closely at the cost of restoration. The analysis will be that will be available this Thursday will show that we can probably do this at a lower cost than we originally estimated. We believe now the most probable cost of removing the four dams is around $290 million. The cost of removing the four dams, probable cost, is around $290 million in 2020 dollars. That is, that is less than the $450 million that we identified earlier. So we're finding lower costs to be able to complete the project. To date, we have maintained a very public process, but we need to have the continued input of the public as we move forward with the draft EIS. I expect to make a decision on the Klamath in March of 2012. That's not that far away. September is almost gone. We'll be at Christmas. March will be here. I want to be able to make a decision that will stand the test of time. We'll need your help in getting it done. On the San Joaquin River, the second water settlement and river restoration, which is really part of the river restoration program of the Department of Interior and America's Great Outdoors. We're doing river restoration around America because what we have found is over the last 30 years, people are turning their faces and their arms and embracing the rivers of America. Whether it's the Los Angeles River or the San Joaquin River, the Bronx or the Harlem, the Anacostia or rivers all across America, that's what we are doing. And that's what we're doing with the San Joaquin River and its restoration. 
The San Joaquin flows from the high Sierra Madre, Nevada, into the San Francisco Bay. It is the lifeblood for some of the richest agricultural land in the nation. It, is all, it also used to be home to the magnificent salmon runs from the Pacific Ocean in the spring. Those runs disappeared when the river stopped flowing half a century ago. That's when some of you in this audience were probably one and two, five and ten years old. Some of you were 50 years away from being born. But that's when the salmon runs disappeared. Now, you know, many decades of litigation. 18 years of what was a very, very expensive court fight. And that court fight was financed by the water district, the districts, the farmers, the environmental groups, anybody who cares about the San Joaquin River. They were all in the fight, fighting for everything to advance their cause. After that huge fight, all of the parties reached an agreement and said, let us move forward together hand in hand. So you would expect that after that fight, we'd be able to get it done. And with the determined leadership of your very fine and distinguished senator, United States Senator Feinstein, who knows probably more about water issues than almost anybody in the United States Senate, and with the full support of the president and the Congress and the leadership of my team at Interior, that settlement was codified and it became part of the law of the land in the early part of 2009. The San Joaquin River Restoration Program is remarkable. Remember, it was codified not all that long ago, but yet it's moving. It's an example of a thoughtful and measured solution that balances the public interest for a vibrant river system and sustainable salmon populations while minimizing and reducing impacts to farmers in the San Joaquin Valley. The program has achieved significant successes. This past year was the first time in half a century. This past year. Remember the law was signed in 2009? All that acrimonious litigation? Well, this last year, it was the first time in half a century that the San Joaquin River ran from its headwaters to the oceans. I think that's a remarkable achievement of a river reborn. This year, state and federal agencies Agencies showed that salmon can successfully migrate downstream and through the restoration area. There's, that's a great sign for the long-term success of the program. But make no mistake, we still have some challenges ahead of us. A restoration project does not happen overnight. But the partners in the settlement are working very hard with us to get it done. And it includes people who are arch enemies of the past, partners of ours, the Friant Water Users, the NRDC, and so many other partners who are making it happen. And they're working with us closely as we hold hands to make sure that the progress that we, has made, that we have made is not reversed. The challenges we are facing are from the need to be practical in our implementation of this settlement. Yet there are a few members of this state's California delegation in the House of Representatives who will pound their chest and who will say that all this work, all this settlement after all this litigation, that it ought to be thrown out the window. I think the people of California and I think the people of those districts should be rightly mad at those congressional representatives for making those kinds of statements 
to throw out the great work that has gone in along the San Joaquin River and along the interests of the farmers and the environmentalists and the communities. We need to stay the course, and we will stay the course. Killing the, the settlement on the San Joaquin would only lead to more litigation and more economic uncertainty. We've had enough of that. We don't need any more. And renewed conflict would inject renewed chaos in the management of California's already overstressed water supplies. I'm sure that we will succeed in the San Joaquin River restoration, but we will need all of your help. Finally, to the granddaddy of them all, I suppose, the California Bay Delta. You know, there are other water and environmental restoration issues which are very complex and which I spend a lot of my own personal time on. The Everglades is one of those places. Uh, the Everglades in South Florida. Some of you may have been there. For you, the young people in the audience, at some point, I would hope your teachers and your parents and your community can help you come and visit the Everglades to see what we are doing there. You will see us, the alligators, and you will see lots of wildlife that you don't see anywhere else in the world. It's a world heritage site. It is a world heritage site. And yet, for a 100 years, this so-called river of grass was decimated and destroyed. And so for the last 20 years, we've worked very hard to bring back the river of grass and to restore the Everglades. Now, we're not done there yet. We have a lot of work ahead of us. But we have put together a coalition with the state of Florida and with the tribes and with so many of the water interests because water also there is the lifeblood of the economy of South Florida. And we're making very significant progress. People say around the earth, not just here in the United States, but around the earth, that the Everglades is the single largest ecosystem restoration project in the world. It is that big. And as complex as that project has been, and as much attention as has been paid to that project from people throughout the world, I will tell you that the challenges that face us here in the California Bay Delta and in the river systems that feed that delta are equally as difficult. And when we succeed with meeting those challenges, we will have an ecosystem restoration program here which is equal, if not even larger, than that of the Everglades. It is my view and has been my view since I became Secretary of Interior that when we talk about the California Bay Delta and the rivers that feed that Bay Delta, we really are talking about one of the signature landscapes of the United States of America. But we know that the system here is at high risk of catastrophic failure. We know, and I was thinking about it the day when the earthquake hit Washington, D.C. There was a little earthquake, 5.8, I think they called it. Uh, Mike Connor was in his office having a meeting and didn't know whether we had been attacked or what was going on. Uh, and so there was fear there. Talked to one of the best earth scientists in the world, a woman from California, Marcia McNutt, who is a director of the U.S. Geological Survey, a bureau director and colleague with Mike and David. And she will tell you 
the probability of having a seismic event here in California that will dramatically disrupt what happens with the water conveyance systems for California is very high. There is a very high probability. And for people to sit back and not do anything about it would be unconscionable. We need to move forward, not only because of the seismic risk, we also have economic certainties and we have environmental goals that we must meet. But there is an urgency of the now to get something done and not to allow the progress that has been made over the last several years to become unraveled. Fish populations in the Delta, we know, have been declining for years. The smelt is at a risk of extinction, and the commercial and recreational salmon fishing season in California was closed for almost three years. We know we are emerging from a severe drought, and yes, it doesn't seem as painful this year, but any of you who are from farming country know how that can change so dramatically from one year to another. In fact, uh, my first brush up against uh, California water politics came in uh, 1990 when California was uh, undergoing one of its most severe water crises of its time. And I was in Colorado defending our rights under the Colorado River system. So it can change very quickly. Now, the Bay Delta itself, we know, is in a state of environmental uh, collapse, so we need to move forward to make sure that we can deal with that. Um, let me... Uh, Try to skip a few things here. Um, now, I said earlier at the beginning of my speech, when I became Secretary of Interior, I had been there for about nine nanoseconds. And David Hayes comes knocking on the door and he says, We've got to work on the Bay Delta. It's as important as the Everglades. It's as important as the crown of the continent. It's as important as the Colorado River. It's as important to fly as 93, just went on. So we've been working on the California Bay Delta ever since, David. And David has been a key leader in doing a lot of what we have done. And we have made some progress. Uh, we, in 2009, since then, we have uh, invested $400 million. Yeah, $400 million in water infrastructure projects to assist with drought relief, to build fish screens, to improve water re reuse and restore habitat. Now, I think any of you, if I were to ask you, is $400 million a significant investment? You would say, yes, it's a significant investment. And that's because we want to we want to walk our talk. We want to tell you that we're with you. We want to get this thing done. Later today, uh, I will have the honor of dedicating one of those projects. The Contra Costa Fish Screen Project will help prevent fish from entering the canal through the intake. The engineers and the welders and construction crews on the projects are among the more than 5,000 people who have gone, gone to work on water infrastructure projects in California, thanks to the investments we have made there over the last two years. These projects will make a difference, but they are only a part of the long-term solution. So then, what is a long-term solution? You've been talking about this long-term solution for a very long time. I've had conversations with my very wonderful and good friend, George Miller from San Francisco, who had a view about what ought to happen here many years ago. But he also has a new view of what we ought to be doing, which is consistent with what we're trying to do here. That we need to have a practical and, and common sense plan for the future. So our solution is the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. 
The Bay Delta Conservation Plan is the most important and most complex long-term water and habitat management plan ever undertaken in the history of the United States of America. The BDCP provides a comprehensive approach that includes new habitat for endangered fish species, coordinated measures to attack toxics, and improvements to the state's water infrastructure. Rather than simply pumping water from north to south through the delta, which places immense strain on the system and is unreliable, a new conveyance system would reduce direct conflicts between water supply and fisheries, as the Delta Vision Blue Ribbon Task Force and many independent scientists have recommended. This was not something which we picked out of uh, a store in Washington, D.C. This was something which was born here in California through the stakeholders who participated in that process for such a very long time. This type of comprehensive approach is long overdue. We must simply find a way to put California on a path to restore the Delta and protect in-Delta interests while also securing a more reliable water supply for its future. There are co-equal goals, co-equal goals which I have spoken about frequently here in California, as have your most recent governors, Governor Schwarzenegger and now Governor Brown. And those co-equal goals were codified in landmark legislation, which was passed not very long ago at all, but by your General Assembly in 2009. Those co-equal goals are to make sure that we move forward with uh, water supply and with restoration. And that's why for the past two and a half years, we have committed a vast amount of energy and will continue to commit a vast amount of energy. Now, these two guys here, you know, along with uh, my senior team, we have a lot of responsibilities if you think about what the Department of Interior does. You know, we have to take care of oil and gas production so that we can power our economy. We're standing up a whole new world of renewable energy on public lands that has never been stood up before. 10,000 watts, megawatts, equivalent of 30 power plants to be done, authorized by the end of 2012. We're dealing with 565 Native American tribes trying to deliver on what they were promised a long time ago, and we work on that every day, and lots of other issues. But I have my deputy secretary here and my commissioner of reclamation been here many, many times. And so what are they doing today? They're going to have meetings with the water districts and the water users for part of the afternoon. They're going to have meetings with the NGOs for part of the day. They're going to be meeting with the state of California for part of the day. So we're here because we want to make this work. And we're committed to make it work, and we believe that we will. So let me just uh, skip very fast to the end of my speech here, because otherwise I think I will have stayed too long. Um, I'm, I'm confident that uh, with the leadership that we have here in California, with uh, the environmental groups, with the water users, with the farmers who are the salt of the earth of this country, Farmers, I always say, are the ones who provide us with our food security in our country. You know, when I was attorney general in my state, I had a sign on my desk that said, no farms, no food. And I became a U.S. senator for Colorado when I worked on energy issues. I had that same sign on my desk because I didn't want us to go down the same path that we have gone down with oil for the last 30 years, where we became so dependent that our national security, our economic security, our environmental security became compromised because of our dependence on other countries, many times not our friends, to be able to power our economy. We in America will never let that happen. 
and that's because of the quality of the farmers that we have here in the United States of America. And so as we work with them and as we work with the environmental community who have taught us in so many ways how we need to take care of this very special place we call our earth and our place and our planet, we need to make sure that we're doing it right. And here in California, when we talk about the Klamath and we talk about the San Joaquin and we talk about the California Bay Delta, there are three great examples of what we can do. So we'll go down one of two roads. Ten years from now, we'll look back at this time and we will say they tried and they failed. Or ten years from now, we can look back at this time and we can say they tried, they gave it their all, and they did it. And for that, we are much better as a citizen, as a city, as a county, as a state, and as a nation. And I'm confident that because of the spirit that resides here in this state, because of the commitment from President Obama and Senator Feinstein and Senator Boxer and your congressional delegation, that we are going to find the right way forward so that in 10 years, when these eighth graders are then 18 years old and going on into college and seeing what college is all about, they'll be able to say in California, the state that does so much for America, one of the largest economies in the world, that they were able to deal with this matter called water, liquid gold, the most precious resource perhaps on our planet, that they were able to take these big fights and they were able to find solutions that made sense for us and that made sense for our children and for our grandchildren. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Secretary of the Interior Ken Salazar for his comments here today at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Mr. Secretary, you mentioned a new conveyance system, which also known as a peripheral canal, uh, which has been talked about, for, as you said, for decades in, in California. In your view, is that system about reliably ensuring the existing supply, protecting against seismic risks, or is it about expanding the supply of water for the population that's growing? Is it, or is it both? You know, I think it can be both. Certainly in terms of uh, reliability, California does not have a reliable water system now. It's uh, significantly at, at, at uh, risk, as you said, because of seismic activity. And when you have a redundancy that's built into the system, then you can do additional things that can also help you in terms of how we manage water. You know, one of our major problems, Greg, with water is not so much our facilities, but sometimes how we are able to manage a water supply in a more efficient way. Just this last year, I didn't go through the whole laundry list of things that we've done, but the interconnection between the state uh, project and the federal project has allowed us to manage those two systems in a way that enhances our water uh, reliability and our water supply. So we uh, can do both, and... Uh, I don't believe that uh, at the end of the day, the way that they will be operated, that those who are concerned that all of a sudden you're going to have a drying up of the north as wa more water is moved to the south, will find those fears to be founded. Uh, let's talk about price a little bit. Uh, money and price is often at the center of, of concerns about water. Uh, 
I talked to some agricultural interests who say water is fairly priced uh, now in California. Other people think that water is, is underpriced. Uh, is it fairly priced in your view? Will the price of water go up because of all the capital investment the state needs to make in its water system? Well, first, uh, I think from a federal point of view, water has been subsidized for a long time. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just the reality of it uh, that we think about the Bureau of Reclamation and the huge projects that have been built from the sure. Bureau of Reclamation and how water supply is delivered. There's a subsidy there that uh, goes to agriculture, no doubt. And so one of the things that uh, we do look at and uh, uh, must look at is, you know, are we getting a, a fair return? You know, and so that's that will always be an issue in terms of how you set the, the right uh, the right price for for water. Uh, you know, in terms of what the Bay Delta uh, Conservation Plan does and how the dual conveyance system, uh, how it will ultimately impact what the price of water is and the market rates of water, it's still something that's uh, to be determined on down the road. I mean, that's part of what we are engaging uh, in now, Greg, with respect to the studies that hopefully will be undertaken. Um, but would you say about the, you know, the federal government has for a long time pursued an expansionist policy, more water, more pe- more projects for more people. Is that still the case, an expansionist view of, um, or is it so- something different? Yeah, I, I, think, I think if you look at the history, I think 100 years ago, you know, the, the system and doctrine that we had for the West, the prior appropriation system, was that if you could uh, dam up the river and take out 100% of the water, that was the way you approached it. So the value of water within a stream was not something that was valued. And so the whole era uh, through the first part of the last century in the United States was that's how we approached it, dam up all the rivers, take out all the water, and uh, that was our basic approach. You know, I think over the last uh, 40 years and uh, certainly over the last 30 years, there's been a, a different view, and I think the view has uh, a number of components. First, storage is still good, and I don't think people should uh, be alarmed that I'm saying here that we're not about uh, storage and uh, that uh, dams are are not good. They are good, and uh, frankly, without uh, the storage and and dams that we have across the West, we wouldn't be able to have the food security that I was just speaking about here in the vibrant agricultural economy, so they are good. But I would say there are two things that have been added on top of that, Greg. I think the second thing has been the understanding that we can do a lot better with good water management practices. We can be much more efficient with uh, low-pressure irrigation systems as opposed to high-pressure irrigation systems. We can be much more efficient with how much water we apply to crops, with the kinds of crops that are grown. So how we manage water, how we integrate systems to get more out of systems. So we're much better water management today with technology and with understanding in 2011 than we were in 1981, so water management in general. And uh, the third and, and uh, co-equally important area is there's been an understanding about the uh, connection between uh, the environmental values of in-stream flows and uh, uh, having water in there to be able to, to, to have those in-stream flows uh, live. Uh, you know, you take, the, you take the water out of the river, and yes, you're not going to have any salmon, <laughs> You know, you uh, so so there's an understanding that there's a, a value there for the provision of, of in-stream flows. That's why when we talk about you know the San Joaquin River restoration, I mean, 50 years of a dead river, and uh, now 50 years later, you have a uh, salmon population that is going to come back if we just uh, are able to keep our shoulder to the wheel. We now understand the importance of uh, the fishery value. As I said earlier, just in my 
it was remarkable uh, to be up uh, in the lower Elwa River. It is a, a remarkable place in our nation. But to see... That's well, in the Olympic National Park in the Washington. The Olympic National Park. 20-pound 20 uh, pound salmon, all right there at the foot of the, of the dam, ready to go 70 miles upstream. And they'll be able to do that in two years. Now, there's an important environmental value, an important economic value, an important recreational value, important, important spiritual value for the tribe. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar. Uh, the Endangered Species Act, how does that fit into the Bay Delta restoration? Is it just about protecting those species, uh, pre- preventing jeopardy, or is it about improving the situation for those, those species that are at risk in the Bay Delta? I think it's about improving uh, the whole environmental circumstance in the, in, in the Bay Delta. You know, I think the smelt, uh, if you might say, maybe you know, the, the canary in the coal mine, that uh, unless we are able to deal with all the other issues relating to the habitat for, uh, for the smelt, you're going to have a continuing collapse uh, of, of the Bay Delta because other species then will, will come into play. And so how we address uh, the issues of the smelt hopefully will result in a much healthier ecosystem in the Bay Delta. And uh, at the same time, we'll be able to uh, help other species in a way that uh, makes it a much healthier ecosystem. You mentioned climate change. How is climate change going to affect the water situation in in California? I think in a very dramatic uh, fashion, uh, and depending on the rivers, okay, but first, uh, one of the things that you're going to see is that there's changing precipitation patterns that are going to happen uh, throughout the United States of America. And so there'll be more water in some places and less water in other places. But in addition to the quantity of water, uh, one of the major differences that we will start seeing will be the way that uh, what water runs off. Uh, you know, usually most of us in the water business look at uh, the snowpack as being the big mm-hmm. reservoir where snow is actually stored until it runs off and is used uh, in the summers and other times. And what's going to happen is that the timing of those uh, runoffs is going to change. Mm-hmm. And so how then you store the water and how you use the water uh, will be impacted by, by when the runoff occurs. And then uh, finally, uh, especially for California, I think, I think the Colorado River may be the best place to tell the story of what's happening with uh, climate change around America. I think both the Colorado and the Rio Grande, uh, those two basins, uh, when you look at the drought, uh, conditions and the history of what's happened in those two basins over the last uh, 20, 30 years, and, and then you look at the projections between now and 2050, you're going to see dramatic declines in the amount of water that's available in the Colorado River system. And you know, those people who have studied the history of the Colorado River and the compacts on the Colorado River know that when the negotiations that divided up the water, the Colorado River were uh, put together, they had a premise that there was uh, about 15 million acre-feet of water available every year on average in the Colorado River. Well, as happens with water, often they, they overshot the, the truth by about uh, a million and a half to two and a half million acre-feet. So there's already a lot less water in the Colorado R- River than has been allocated to the states. And then on top of that, if you put a 15 to 20 percent decline over the next 50 years, you know, there's going to be a lot less water. So that then brings in, I think, what is uh, one of the great principles of water for this century, and that's how you manage within that water supply. And you can manage water in a way to do a lot more 
than than you can if you just you know not pay regard to how you're managing it. Brings to mind that photo of uh, Lake Mead where they keep putting the pipe lower and lower the third straw in Lake Mead, and mm-hmm. the water keeps dropping below where they're building the new straw to, to take it out. Uh, we are going to put an audience microphone right here and have a few questions for Secretary Salazar. Uh, the line begins uh, in, in the back, uh, right at the back door. And, um, uh, yes, please, I uh, would invite you to stay seated until Secretary Salazar uh, leaves, leaves the room. So the line begins where Jane Ann, who just came to me, right there. That's where the line begins. If you're on this side of the room, we invite you to go over through that door and form the line right there. Um, Secretary, uh, Secretary Salazar, you mentioned uh, a climate change. I'd like to ask one uh, broad question that touches on some of the other aspects of, of your portfolio. Um, when Barack Obama uh, clinched the Democratic presidential nomination in 2008, he gave a speech in which he said people would look back on his presidency as a time when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. Uh, And since that time, the administrations had opened up 2.3 billion tons of coal mining in uh, Wyoming, the Arctic potentially to drilling, and uh, potentially uh, on track to approve a Keystone XL pipeline, which would bring some of the dirtiest fuel from the Alberta tar sands to to Texas. So how does that record square with the president's pledge to address climate change? I think, uh, Greg, what one must do is to put the, uh, the issue in the context of uh, what it is that we're doing on energy. And I think when you look at uh, the president and uh, the energy team and the programs that we have put forward, uh, we are doing more than has been done uh, in the time of, of history on fuel efficiency, our vehicles are going to be getting uh, 40 and 50 miles to a gallon. We're going to be saving billions of uh, mm-hmm. barrels of oil a year. That means uh, less CO2 that's uh, going to be burned. We've embraced a whole new ethic on what we're doing with renewable energy, from uh, solar to geothermal to, to wind. That is moving forward. We've uh, invested uh, billions of dollars in uh, efficiency and in new materials to try to deal with uh, the energy issue, which is really the, 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 the nexus between uh, what happens here on Earth and, 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 the changes, and the changes in climate. Now, have we been able to do as much as we wanted to do? The answer is no. Uh, yeah, we wanted to pass a comprehensive energy and climate change legislation bill. We worked on that very hard. We're willing to work on it again. We, don't, we're, we, we never give up. You know, our, our own view as an administration is uh, that the time will come uh, when uh, the Congress will awaken to the need to have uh, a comprehensive energy and climate change uh, legislative framework. And it's, it's not just recognized by the president and by his team. It's recognized as well by people like DuPont and uh, many other companies who recognize that uh, dealing with energy and climate is important. And the, the principles that will keep driving this agenda forward uh, in the years and in the decades ahead are at the end of the day, about national security and uh, the fact that now we are so dependent on countries that really don't have our best interests at stake, our economic security because we're now sending $700 billion a year overseas, and uh, finally the environmental security of the planet. Just a, a point on climate change, because I, th- I do think that's the point of contention that there's a lot of, 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 uh, of dis- maybe not dispute, but a lot of, of conversation about. I mean, it is here. Uh, I think what there is still some consensus to be forged on is what is the solution then to this reality of climate. 
And I think that's what we will see uh, emerging over the years ahead. It's a whole other conversation there, perhaps for another time, about distribution and generation and siting and all of that thing. Uh, let's have our audience question for Secretary Salazar of the Commonwealth Club. Hi. Uh, my name is Peter Gisela, uh, Secretary Salazar. Um, the Civilian Conservation Corps was part of FDR's New Deal, and within six months there were a quarter million young adults in camps being trained for that. I was wondering if you could take back a challenge to President Obama, the Obama administration, and the Congress to try to achieve that duplication within the next nine months to have a quarter million young adults involved in a civilian conservation corps. Um, Thank you. Thank as you. part of the jobs program we have today. Peter, as uh, part of the America Jobs Act, uh, there is significant money that the president is proposing to allocate uh, to hire young people across America for exactly those kinds of jobs. And uh, even in the last two and a half years, just uh, within my Department of the Interior, a number that I just got on Thursday or Friday this last week, we have brought in 35,000 young Americans to work within the Department of Interior at national parks, wildlife refuges, Bureau of Reclamation facilities all across the world. They do two very important things. One, they help us do our job now because they're great workers. Number two, they become the people who will take over and become the workers uh, in the outdoors in the future. In our department, between now and 2016, about 40% of the workforce will retire. Uh, the replacements will hopefully come from people who are engaged in those kinds of programs. Next question, please, quickly. Um, this is a bit of a follow-up on your question. Um, the Obama administration was said to be an administration that follows science, and we have James Hansen talking about climate change. He says we could probably survive using all the petroleum. But if we your, use your first point was false. What did you say? The, the Obama administration was going to follow science. follow science. And I think okay. you're following science to some extent. You believe in climate change. But uh, it's not a belief, but okay. Yeah. Well, the, the science. Is, you, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Your question is? The question is, can we burn all this coal? Hansen has said we can't. Thank you. And can we, burn, can we take the tar sands? And these are things you can change without the Congress. Is that correct? Thank you. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, coal is uh, one of the greatest emitters of, uh, of CO2, and uh, there are ways in which uh, you can deal with that, including the conversion of uh, CO2 of, of coal plants over uh, to natural gas, which are much, much less uh, CO2 emitting. Uh, but we are 50, almost 50 percent of our electricity now comes from uh, coal supplies, and so we need to find the right way to transition uh, from coal to the new energy world. And in addition to that, and something which we have worked on very hard, is to find a way to provide a future for coal supplies here in the United States by finding a way of burning it cleanly so you don't have the same problems of the past. And so it's carbon capture and sequestration and moving forward with those kinds of projects, which hopefully will be able to find that one of the most abundant energy supplies that we have here in America will have a place in the future energy portfolio of the country. Last question. Yes, sir, please. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. On behalf of our fishing men and women up and down the coast, I really want to thank you and the Department of Interior for your strong support in taking down the Elwha dams on the, your work on the Klamath and also on the San Joaquin. But our big concern right now with the Bay Delta is, is that there appears to be a conflict right now between what's being proposed by the BDCP and what the scientists are saying. And my question to you is, 
Is your uh, uh, Department of Interior and yourself, are you fully prepared to follow what the scientists say or what the water agencies are trying to propose? Thank you. I also have a letter for you. BDCP is the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. Secretary Salazar. You know, our science uh, is a foundation of everything uh, that we do, including uh, opinions that we currently have uh, here in the BDCP and uh, its operations. And so we'll continue to look at the science uh, to guide us uh, in the decisions uh, that we make. The BDCP and its plan needs to go through all of the environmental analysis, and certainly uh, science will be there. And so uh, we, uh, we, we, we are not taking shortcuts on the science, and we're uh, doing the very best we can to make sure that uh, science is at the forefront of all these major decisions. A full list, uh, this full program is available in the iTunes store if you would like to listen to the podcast of Secretary Salazar here at the Commonwealth Club today. Thank you, Secretary Salazar. Thank you to our audience on the radio and to our audience here. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Please stay seated in your seats while the Secretary departs. Thank you very much.